right, welcome back. Episode 18. And we've got a special guest. Yay. Yeah. Hello. So I don't, should I miss Jessica Patterson? Or? Jessica Patterson. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you want to be formal or? No, not at all. Yeah. Jessica or yeah. Jess. All right. So we got Jess on here. Um, she's a friend of ours who is a licensed therapist. Yes. Anything else to add to that? Yeah, I work out of a counseling center in Round Rock called New Life Counseling Center. Um, I work with couples, families, um, individuals, and I enjoy what I do. Yeah. This is actually Adrian's idea because he thought of you. Um, I'm sorry. sorry. As soon as you said Jess, all I could think of was the theme song to New Girl. (laughs) Which is like, so my brain was off. I I saw something shiny. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, it's, um, we were having a little bit of a conversation before and you know, one of the things that God's impressed on my heart um, and Paula the last couple of years is that people are fearfully and wonderfully made. And over the last few years, we just lift up our eyes and we see people and we, we kind of look at our, even our friends and the church family that God's brought us into. And we realize that like God surrounded us with some pretty amazing people. It feels like we're seeing them with new eyes. So when uh, we started talking about walking together and start talking about counseling and mental health and things like that, it occurred to me, it's like, oh, wait, I know somebody, but I had never seen you through that lens before. I hadn't seen you or looked at you with this different set of eyes that God's given me and Paula lately. So now I'm like, wow, this is amazing. This is so cool. So yeah, we're really so glad you could join us. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, and then when he brought it up, I was like, I, I love your family and your husband. Like he's an amazing dude. He is. He's yes. so nice and wonderful. I would love to have him on here too at one point. Like, <laughs> oh, he would be great. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like his stories. Like every time he sits down and I talk to him, he just he's whenever like, I stare, see Jonathan, stare at him. <laughs> whenever I see him, it makes my heart happy. Yeah. Oh. Like really, just I, we saw him recently at, at some event. And um, yeah, literally, because he played guitar with us when we launched. Yeah. And I've just always liked being around him. He makes my heart happy too when I see him. Okay, but in a slightly different way. I think, yes. <laughs> yeah, they just like just a little bit on the opposite. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's just, he's just, there's a, there's a phrase in Spanish um, and it's, tiene la sangre liviana. And what that literally means, the literal translation is their blood is light. And you use that to describe people that are very likable. Mm. So when you meet someone and you say, tiene la sangre liviana, that means, oh, wow. You just walk up to this person. You just like them immediately. I I don't know why, but I just like you. Jonathan's one of those people for me. I really love to hear that. Yeah, he's awesome. I agree. So tell him all these things. I will. If you're listening, Jonathan, we love you, bro. Oh. Well, so uh, I had a a topic and a theme, which you and I already talked about. Um, But just to build context for people that are listening, the question that I asked in my jumbled way is when an individual is dealing with trauma, is it, do they learn from the awareness of the triggers from the actual trauma itself? Um, so from the, the, the realization and coming to the awareness of like, this is what it is, or is it in the work that they have to do to get through that trauma or is it both? Mm-hmm. Right. And a lot of that is based on what I've dealt with for the past year and a half. You know, most people that listen to the podcast, they, they know that I've gone through a divorce and, um, and then they've kind of heard my story, right? They've, they've heard the journey that I've been on for the past what, 18 episodes now. <clears throat> and we've talked a lot about all those things. And so I wanted to get a clinical response and some, nobody better than to have you on here. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, what, what were your thoughts? Like originally when I had asked that question. My first thought was, how about both? Yeah. And that's it, guys. Bye. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. <laughs> well, if you're not going and dealing with the trauma that you need to deal with, your own healing, and you're not becoming aware of internally what's been going on, um, what's coming up from the past, and just becoming more and more self-aware um, and healing from your hurt, you'll inevitably 
seek the healing through a person. You'll seek out in a relationship, a person to heal you. And triggers come up in relationships. People, especially the closest relationships, um, trigger a lot of things that you've been through in your family of origin or in past traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen. It's going to come up. But are you going to rely on that person to be your source of healing? Are you going to put your own trauma on that person, mm-hmm. um, whether it's a friend or a spouse or a kid or a colleague or a family member of some sort? Are you going to put them in a place that they need to respond to you in certain ways so that your heart heals, so that your soul heals? Or are you going to just be able to do your own work while you let them know and communicate in a relationship? This triggers me. This is what's coming up for me. I'm responsible for that though. I'm responsible for how I'm reacting, how I'm feeling, what I'm thinking and working through what I've been through and what's coming up for me, not you. But this brings up a trigger for me, a reaction in me. And then you're whoever you're in a relationship with can be mindful of that in the future and their responsibility to you is going to be to understand this triggers you. And maybe that's something that they can adjust. They're not responsible for you, however, making sure that you don't get triggered and making sure that you get healed and that you're okay. But you're going to tear apart any relationship if you just take trauma and seek healing for that in a relationship. I thought about what we just talked about before we jumped on, how you talked about that, your mentor, therapist, friend, Mm -hmm. where you want them to tell you what to do. And I think a lot of times what I thought about just automatically was like, well, if if my expectation is for healing to come from an individual, then number one, that sounds like it's going to take a lot longer than it's supposed to. The amount of pressure that you put on that person will probably dilute and ruin that relationship. And then that's typically what happens, right? Yes. Relationships are just going to get so strained from the weight of our inability to deal with our problems, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it all stems from us wanting to have somebody tell us what to do. That's pretty impactful. Yeah. Being dependent on other people and not, the Lord and not our own selves. Yeah. That's huge. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I'm thinking of that line in, in Jerry Maguire that everybody loves so much. That's always quoted and remembered. It's like, you complete me. Mm-hmm. Very healthy, by the way. I know. And that, that's like a complete fallacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, to set that expectation on anybody is just to set yourself up for a disappointment. Yeah. So when it comes to trauma, like even trauma aside, if you're going into a relationship thinking this person's going to complete me and you're looking for wholeness and um, completeness outside of your relationship with God, that person very likely never, um, I'd say most commonly, never projected that that's what they were going to do. But I think we project that onto them. And what ends up happening is we want them to, to fill every, every need, fulfill every need and help us to be, become all that God created us to be when that's not their role. So we end up projecting or putting this, this huge responsibility, expectation and burden on them that they were never meant to carry. And it seems like it's only a matter of time before they're going to fail to meet that expectation, at which point we are going to feel disappointment, you know, some kind of regret or frustration because they didn't meet that need that, that they never said they were going to meet necessarily that we projected on them. It's a really nice fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people think that someone that really loves them, they really care about them. They're going to know inherently what they need. They're going to anticipate that their every need and they're going to, meet them before they're even asked. And so 
They're going to read your mind. And when they don't, you're going to get upset. Exactly. And then when you're upset, if they don't guess why you're upset, then you're going to get more upset, right? I'm okay. What's wrong? No, no really. No, I'm okay. Really? No, really. What's wrong? I'm okay. Well, you need to tell your face because you don't look okay. Yeah. What's wrong? It's like, can you just say it? Yeah. Well, you should have been able to read my face. So now that you asked me that you read my face and you said that something's wrong, I feel really loved right now, but you don't know what it is. So now I'm angry. Oh my God. This is a trigger for me. Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> no, but I've seen that play out in real relationship. Like I've had conversations like that in previous relationships and I'm, and I've even been in therapy mm. with, with individuals where the therapist is like, actually, that's not fair because Alex can't read your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and man, as a, as a receiving or someone that's trying to be effective in communication, that's tough because you, you kind of carry that burden of like, should I know this? Right. You know? Well, and you, especially if you want to help the person, you want yeah. to be there, everything. Some people really need to be needed. They need to be a hero and they need to, to be with someone with trauma and, and reassure them, I'm going to be the one to heal you. Mm-hmm. And so they're living out that, 90s pop song that a lot of these people who depend on people to fulfill them and complete them. I'll never break your heart. I'll never make you cry. I would never do that to you. Um, no matter what and I'm going to always love you to the end of time. Um, did you just Rick roll us? What's that? (laughs) Never gonna give you. Oh, never gonna let. <laughs> no, I was starting with the. It um, sounded like you were was in it, that direction. Wasn't that Backstreet Boys? Oh, or, that's, a, no, that's a trigger for me. I'm sorry. In sync. No, somebody did the. I'll Another never. Actually, I'm about to start singing it. I, I, know you are. I think you I'm should. I'm about to sing it. <laughs> but I always got mad at that song because, or songs like that, yeah. because it's like, well, of course, somebody's gonna make you cry. They're not gonna try to make you cry, but you're gonna cry. And that doesn't mean that they're a terrible person. It doesn't mean it's a bad relationship. It doesn't mean it's the end of the world. Um, but some people actually want to be that person for people. They need to be needed. And it's usually related to something from their family of origin and their upbringing, something that they learned in a relationship of how to be. And I love, I am loved and I matter and I'm significant if I... Performance-based acceptance. Yes. If I perform in this way, if I do these behaviors, do these things that... That's my buy-in to yeah. be a part of this really. And that's, that's my worth. That's so interesting because that's the flip side. That's one side is you're looking for somebody to fulfill you and to, to meet all those needs, which they were, that's just not realistic. And this is the other side is that that individual who feels like, okay, I need to find, I need to be in a relationship with someone who whose needs I can fulfill, who I can try to be everything for. And if I'm not like that, then- like you said, that's your sense of worth or sense of value is in your ability to bring comfort or fulfill others' needs. Yeah, right. yeah. And so it's easy to have this fantasy though, if you're not working through your own healing, it's either to have the fantasy of being someone else's everything mm-hmm. and and doing everything they need to heal and feeling that burden for them, or it's wanting someone else to be responsible for your healing. And there's a difference between responsibility to someone and a responsibility for someone. Responsibility to is more boundaried. It's while I'm a solid self, I'm my own person. I have a responsibility to you to a degree as your spouse, as your friend. I have a responsibility to answer your text. I have a responsibility um, to be home when you get home from work. I don't have a responsibility for your mood that day. I don't have a responsibility for making sure you're happy. So it's almost like, could it be kind of like accountability versus responsibility? I'm accountable to someone. Yeah, They're going to hold me accountable for certain things but I'm not responsible for them. Yeah, that's a good point. Right? Okay. Because that's different. Like, how can I be held responsible for the actions of another person? Right. I shouldn't bear the responsibility for decisions and actions that they made. If I was to do that, one, that's, 
well, it's incredibly unfair, but it's also disempowering to them. It's like, hey, do, do whatever you want. I'm going to bear the responsibility for it. Yeah. Whereas accountability is, okay, you did those things, but I'm here to remind you, you shouldn't have done those things. Well, how many of us grew up in homes where we learned as children that we are responsible for other people's reactions? Oh, siblings. Siblings, parents. Parents, yeah, that's true. Yeah, parents Mm -hmm. for some. And so that doesn't just go away just because we grow up. That's an internal belief. That's the way our brain is wired. That's the way we were conditioned. So that's the way we kind of go forward. Yeah. And naturally it's going to play out in adult relationships. That's all you know. um, We we look at life through the lens of our experience. So if that's what we experience, that's what everything looks like to us. That's true. That's going on in my mind. What's going on over there? I see wheels turning, Alex. Well, I know I was thinking, well, you know, if we're, if we're deciphering what accountability and responsibility looks like, well, what's the responsibility from that accountability? Does that make sense? Am I saying that correctly? Unpack it differently. I'm confused. Okay, let me, let me process this real quick. I think I know what you mean. So if, if you're accountable to me, mm-hmm. what are the expectations for what I should actually do? Right. I think that's what you mean, right? That's exactly what I meant. So then what, what do I have to, if I say that, I'm going to help somebody or I'm in a relationship where they're accountable to me and I'm accountable to them. What does that translate to in terms of work responsibility? Yeah. <laughs> like, or not, I don't know if it's responsibility. Responsibility seems like too heavy a word. Obligation seems like too heavy a word, but like, what is the expectation or what, what do I, what do I do aside from say, Oh, you shouldn't have done that. Well, real quick to add to that. What I'm thinking about is the listeners where they may feel like they have a responsibility over accountability. Mm-hmm. And so where do they, where do they start to separate themselves here where they can start looking at, okay, well, this is an unhealthy behavior. This is an unhealthy expectation. Well, what can I do now to now pivot my mind to start looking at the ways that I can start living out what we're talking about, the accountability over responsibility. It seems you could ask yourself, start with the question, what am I in control of? And that's a really good gauge. That is a good one. Mm. I've heard that many times. Mm-hmm. You can only control what you can control. I'm in control of my thinking. I'm in control of my perspective. I'm in control of my emotions and regulating them or not. I'm in control of what I say. I'm in control of what I do. Mm-hmm. Now, mirror that comment. And all of those things are things that you're not in control of for somebody else. I am not in control of them. I'm, I can't do anything to control them. Yeah. So anything short of controlling them. And I feel like that's probably the, the number one factor when you think about when relationships end. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think a lot of people, because they feel out of control of not being able to control the situation or the result or the... To, what it ends up turning into, um, they begin to act with that responsibility thinking rather than removing them, removing that from the picture and looking at logically, okay, the, these are the things I need to do moving forward, right? Yeah. And I, I try to help clients before they come to that point to make sure that they are looking at themselves enough and and learning more about their own self-management. And the more that people start to focus on their own stuff, their own reactivity and being the person that they really want to be. Cause often in the end of relationships, you're not being the person you want to be yeah. if you're honest. And that's just two people reacting to each other a lot instead of responding to out of the person they want to be. So I help people look at themselves more. And it, it seems that what happens is the more they focus on their own selves and not the other person, the more whatever's going on between them changes for the better. You had, it looks like you had some thoughts. I did. I read this book. The thought is escaping me. I'm always wordy. 
I read this book by Elizabeth Gilbert called, um, I think it was called Big Magic, and she's talking about inspiration. And it's like, she was talking about a poet that had an idea, and she lived on a farm, she's out in a field, and the idea comes into her mind, and she would literally run back to the house. She said, it was like I was trying to catch a tiger's tail, because I didn't want the thought to escape me. That's how I felt right now. Like, I was trying to catch the thought. Um, Identity. It seems like when you were talking about look at the things that you can do, there's things like self-examination. I've had this sense the last few years that the vast, significant, I have no way to quantify this, but a significant portion of the issues that we deal with mental health, socially, culturally, have to do with, um, I guess, a, a skewed or a lack of a sense of identity. Um, not knowing who we are. And as believers, as followers of Jesus, like, I'm his child. I'm his son. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. He created me. I'm loved. I'm precious. I'm cared for. And it seems like a lot of broken behavior stems from not knowing or not internalizing or realizing that. And I can think of specific examples for me where there's moments where I feel that realization very powerfully. Like you have a time of devotion, you have a time of worship, you have a time of prayer. And you know that I, I not only think it, but I, I feel it in my body. Like I'm his son and he loves me and he created me with a purpose. And it, I, I even, it even makes me walk differently. Like I carry myself different. I have a different countenance when I'm sitting in that reality, that, that understanding. And it even feels different when I walk into a room of people. I've always been kind of socially awkward and kind of intimidated in big settings, very introverted. But in those moments where I've been secure in that, in my identity, I could walk into any room with people, with anyone. I don't really care. I just feel secure. I feel, you know, I feel secure in my, I I feel comfortable in my own skin. And whether it's, you know, the White House or a back room somewhere or a church or a bar, it's like in those moments where I'm secure in my identity, it's not like a, I don't want to sound flippant, but I don't really care what you think about me. So when you had a more sense of, a solid sense of self, Mm -hmm it calmed your nervous system. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not reacting. I'm responding to external stimulus. I'm not reacting to external stimulus where when I don't have that, and it's funny because it's kind of elusive. There's moments where I, I feel very secure in that. And there's other moments where maybe because of other things in the context of my life distract me and you know make me forget or cause me to forget. I know that all own the responsibility I forget in the way I respond to other things going on. When I forget, I definitely become more sensitive to external stimulus. I become more sensitive to, hey, did that person look at me a certain way? Did they take a certain tone? Was their body language a certain way? Is this situation, you know, negative? How does this all, it's like, it's almost like it's a a sensitivity meter. And that sensitivity meter goes way up the more I lose my sense of identity and who I am in Christ, I become much more sensitive and much more uh, subject to others' perceptions and the world around me. And the lies of the enemy. Yeah, because what happens is somebody doesn't say hi to you or somebody says something flippantly or somebody doesn't make time. Those are all like seeds that the enemy uses to construct narratives. So we start constructing these narratives in our head that are really, they're not, they don't have a basis in truth because of our insecurity or because of our, you know, um, frail sense of identity. We kind of build this narrative like, oh, that person, man, they, they really didn't, they don't really care about me. What's wrong with me? Why don't they see me? Why didn't they talk to me? Why didn't they do this? Oh, there must be something. And it's like this whole narrative just kind of snowballs. One thing I've found though, it's just like a snowball. 
the faster I stop it, the easier it is to stop. The longer I let it go, it's almost like there's a momentum, like almost like a, an emotional or psychological momentum to it. The longer that narrative gets going, the harder it gets to stop. But that identity, knowing who I am in Christ, um, is monumentally important for me. And I think for, for anyone, I think that kind of gives you the strength to just deal with every situation in life, whether it's other people, whether it's whatever circumstance you're in. And I say this every podcast, and this is why I need Jesus every single day. He is the Prince of Peace. And he really does bring that peace internally and even, and that, that peace is physiological. And so that's your nervous system that's responding to that. And then the lies of the enemy do the opposite, creates fear. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes for really exhausting relationships too. When, when you have one or both people in constant cycles like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just the power of the Lord. What do you think it is though, whenever you're snowballing, that makes it so hard to stop that? Um, the longer you listen to a story, the more you want to get to the end. So the longer the narrative is, the more it's, it's constructing this whole story, this whole world in your head. Whereas it's like once upon a time, record scratch. Oh, I don't really care what comes next. Mm -hmm. But the longer that narrative goes, it's like you're more invested. There's something, I don't know, psychologically or emotionally, there's something about we're building this story. And what I, no, I think even as I'm processing now, if you're building a story for a while and you realize at a certain point that it's a stupid story, then I must be stupid for having built that story. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like when you make a stupid decision, but you're too proud to own it <laughs> and say, I made a stupid decision. I think that's part of it. Oh. That you have to then like, okay, I got to own it now. I'm this far invested. <laughs> yeah. Because if I don't, if it's, it's admitting, okay, I, I made a mistake somewhere in my thinking. Yeah. So I think the sooner, I think with most mistakes, this with any mistake, the sooner I just accept it. Okay. I screwed up. All right. Let me course correct. It's easier. Well, it's also hard to change, to shift your perspective by then. Right. Yeah. That's a whole, like that changes a lot of your world to, to make that shift. And, it, and then you have to go back and you have to change history in your mind. Well, the emotional response, think like, I think, and I don't know, clinically, maybe, maybe you could speak into this, but it feels to me like emotions have momentum. Like if, if, um, if I believe someone said something negative about me, there's like a, a little emotional snowball, snowball building up. If I find out a week later, if I let it go a week and it's been simmering in the back of my mind and I find out a week later, you never said those things. Okay. Intellectually, conceptually, oh, they never said that. The emotions don't change that quickly for me. Mm-hmm. And I think for most, the emotions are like, they've already, you've already engaged. I don't know. If, those emotions have already been engaged. So to walk them back seems to take longer than it does to just change my mind. That makes sense. They've already had an impact on you physically, mm-hmm. mentally, mm-hmm. a deep impact. So that kind of makes it harder. It's like, oh, I changed my mind, but I still, like anytime you're in a stressful situation, once the stress is gone, the stressors are gone. I think it takes a little while for your body to regulate, to come back, yes. to normalize again to the pre-stress situation. It's like our body doesn't react as quickly or it needs time to, to renormalize or normalize. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And it starts with your, your brain. Mm-hmm. It starts with what you're telling yourself about the scenario mm-hmm. and your brain is then go, shifting from pumping all of the fight or flight chemicals into your body mm-hmm. to the calming chemicals. And I guess that makes sense. It, you would have to take that time to counter all the other, you know, cortisol and stress hormones that are in your body 
with what's calming and more peaceful. And so it takes your nervous system time to settle your whole body. But you have to be consistent too with what you're telling yourself then, what, what your brain is telling your body to do. Yeah. I think about it. It's, I think that's why it's so important because the, well, real quick, let me put context. In my mind, I was thinking, well, how does, how does Jesus fit into this equation if our bodies are trying to self-regulate and if what we tell ourselves are so, is so important and it's something that we rely on, if we're feeding only what we tell ourselves, then of course we're going to continue to snowball and we're going to continue to hold on to that thought until it gets to the point of either I don't want to feel like this or I need to go see somebody, I need to talk to somebody. But the thought that came to mind was, well, if we're reading the word and if we're sitting in prayer, then that is feeding um, the opposite of what our emotions are telling us and then letting God do the work in us, right? Yeah. There's that. And there were like three thoughts that went by as you were talking. And I was trying to pin one down. Um I read a book by James Allen that I think was written in 1902 called As a Man Thinketh. It's a really short book. You can read it like 45 minutes. And there's a passage in there where, where he says a man's mind can be likened to a garden. Um, when you wake up in the morning, whatever seeds are planted in that garden or what will bear fruit later on in that day. And I love the way he characterizes it because he says sometimes we wake up and we don't, we don't intentionally plant anything. And... What I took from that is that's why different things pop up throughout our day because it's kind of this random, we're just taking a chance that whatever happened to fall into the garden of our mind that morning is going to bear fruit throughout the day. And sometimes that's fear, anxiety, um, stress. Um, but if we're intentional about the seeds we're placing in our garden at the start of a day, the first thing, then it's much more likely that those seeds are going to bear fruit. So what do those seeds look like to take it out of the conceptual into the real? Well, for me, that's prayer. Um, that's reading. That's thinking about God's grace and having moments of gratitude, just being grateful for everything that he's done. And basically, to, to, to extend on the garden metaphor, it's like making the first thing I do in the day, walking with him in the garden and just planting those things. And what's interesting is sometimes, like I'm doing the daily Bible reading, the, uh, the Bible project one, sometimes I'll read something, and as I'm reading it, I read it, but it's like, uh, I didn't get anything out of that. It was, I read it, but it uh, didn't really move the needle. But later in the day, in the afternoon, there's a realization. There's like an epiphany. Or there's a moment where it's like, oh, I never thought of that before. There was one today. Today, um, we started Proverbs 1. Proverbs 1, I think it's, it's verse 19. And it was, I love the Eugene Peterson version, the message version, where he says, um, it's talking about greed. And the way he translated it was, the more you have, the less you are. And I loved that. I had never, I've read that like tons of times. And it never hit me. It's like, the more you have. And I think in the NIV, it says, ill-gotten gain, you lose your sense of, of life. And it just hit me like, the more you have, the less you are. Because like the more you have, it's, your life is more about the stuff and less about you. It's almost like you're diluting your sense of worth with all this other stuff instead of just you. But I read it first thing this morning, nothing. I'm driving around. And that one phrase, like, boop. The seed just kind of broke, broke the ground. It's like, oh, yeah. So I think putting the stuff, what are we putting into, at least for me, I'm trying to be much more intentional about the things that I put into my, not just my head, but my heart. Um, because those things will bear fruit at some point. They will turn into something. 
Um, and I think about when we went through the Catalyst course, um, the, the class thing. I remember Pastor Kim Swafford doing this lesson on how we as beings are made up of three different parts. We're made up of the, uh, the soul, the spirit, the soul, and the body. The soul being your mind, will, and emotions. And how those, the proper order for those is your spirit should be in charge. And then there's your soul and then there's your body. But how often we get those things out of order. You know, we're driven by the sensations in our body. We're driven by the things that we feel physically, or we're driven by our mind, will, and emotions. And our spirit is secondary to that. And it's like, it, it seems like for me, whenever things are going poorly in my life, it's always been because those things are out of order. It's yeah. not spirit, soul, body. It's good. She was amazing when she taught that. It, so now everything I think about is, when I think about self-awareness and self-care, I'm thinking, am I feeding my spirit? Am I feeding my soul? Am I feeding my body? Now at a certain point, you know, there's a couple of those levers that we can't move as much certain stages of life or certain circumstances physically, I can't change the state of my body. I have friends who um, live with chronic pain. They can't do anything about that chronic pain, but they can still move the other two levers. They can still feed their spirit and they can still feed their mind. Um, mm -hmm. So it's like back to what you were saying earlier, what are the things that you can control? Well, I can control my spiritual state, you know, I can be intentional about what I'm doing spiritually. And for me, what that looks like is, all right, I'm going to start my day with, with prayer and reading and seeking him. And the fruits that you bear from that have nothing to do with what somebody else is doing. It doesn't have anything to do with what they're not doing, what they're saying, how they're feeling. And, and you can have that peace internally no matter what. Yeah, there's no dependency on others. There's no, there's no dependency. And also negatively, I think we kind of make that excuses also for our, our dysfunctional or broken behavior is, well, they made me do this or they treated me like this. That's why I did this because they did that. No, this is, this kind of, this perspective is all about, no, I'm responsible for all these things. Mm -hmm. These are all things that I do. And another thing that I found is when it comes to self, you know, having that secure sense of identity in being his child. I know it sounded flippant when I said earlier, I don't care about what they think, but it's also changed how I love people. I'm able to love them more, more intensely and more freely than when I'm afraid. When I'm secure in who I am in him, I love people better. I love that. And that shows it's the point that it's not the other person that's your problem. They're not your problem. It's your reactivity to them. Mm -hmm. And it's not the situation that's your problem. It's your belief about the situation. Yeah. Your perception and how you, how that perception becomes what you believe and how what you believe becomes the world that you live in. Mm -hmm. How are you perceiving this situation? Let's switch this up real quick. So you have people like myself that are extroverts, love being around people. When does that become unhealthy? Do you think you're unhealthy? No. Okay. Yeah, no, no, no. But I mean, there's, I'll, I'll give you, okay, I should have built some context. Yes, Context please. is everything, people. Yes, there's a, there's a place that this question is coming from. There is. So I've noticed that when I am around people, I feel energized. I feel excited about life, right? I can have about one day of being by myself. If it's any longer than that, then I start to feel depressed or... Um, and then I, I realize, okay, there's, there's a little bit too much dependency on 
people in order for me to be happy. But I'm also wired that way, right? Being an extrovert. So, mm-hmm. so that's where that comes from. Mm-hmm. Everything in balance. Yeah. There's a lot to be said for that part of your personality because extroverts and introverts are defined by wherever you get energy. Mm-hmm. Like what charges your battery being alone or being with people. And right. some people, they like both things, but which one charges you up and which one yeah. drains your battery. Okay. And so it's okay that you get charged yeah. by being around people. And it's funny because extroverts actually take energy from introverts. Mm -hmm. They are what drains the introverts battery. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so they also need to go recharge to be alone and that's okay. Right. They give a lot to be around people and that's, that's also okay. That's a good thing. But everything in moderation, if you're depending on and you're using your extroversion as a crutch, as, well, this is just who I am, so I have to be around people and I don't want to be alone. And and it's noteworthy you're saying that you actually feel depressed if you're alone too much because you're aware of that and that's good. Yeah. Some people aren't aware of that. They just keep pacifying and keeping and keep away from being alone with their thoughts Yeah. by staying with people, staying around people all the time, constantly. And they're never self-aware of what that's about. And so I think it's helpful to ask yourself what gets depressing when you're alone? Mm -hmm. What can you do about that? What is it about for you Mm -hmm. that you're depressed? And is it, is it, um, is it a fear of being alone with your thoughts? And if so, why? And is it something that you need to deal with? Is it something you need to sit with? Yeah. That's good. I know the answer to that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's the, I think it's the snowball. I sit with the emotion and I'm like, okay, here's a, here's a moment. I'm feeling a certain way. I bring it to God. I'm like, all right, God, I feel sad because of X, Y, Z. And then I'll sit with it for a minute. I'll keep sitting with it. I'll keep sitting with it. And it just keeps sitting with me. And I'm like, okay, how do I get this out of me? And then I go into, oh, everything is hell and, you know, dreadful life. Um, and then I get to a point where I'm like, okay, I don't want to feel like this anymore. And I'll do something. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to distract myself. I'm going to distract myself. I'm going to go get in front of other people. Um, but interesting enough, and I don't know if this is just like a healing process those thoughts or those, those feelings won't come back after the fact. So I don't know if that's just my way of dealing with the emotion or the process of that emotion. Um, but it's not like a repeating action. So I don't know if that. You don't get the same feeling that you had when you were alone and then you prayed and then you went out with friends and then the feeling doesn't come back. Well, like I don't, I, like if I'm alone again, yeah, that thought or that emotion won't come back up. So I don't know if it's because I've dealt with it. Or if you swept it under the rug. Or I've swept it under the, yeah. Or shoved it it down. Does it not come back or is it repressed? Or I'm holding down that (laughs) sucker. (laughs) (laughs) What was that? There was an episode of The Family Guy where um, Peter's talking with with his son, Chris. I think it was Chris. Chris is like, dad, what do I do when I have like these these feelings or I'm hurt. He goes, what you do, Chris? You just take them. You just pack them way in there. You just push them down and never let them come out. Yes. That is my number one thing I tell clients. (laughs) Just just pack those emotions in there. Just, they'll go away. Don't worry. Yeah. Nothing will come with those. Yeah. (laughs) So do they really go away? Or are you keeping yourself distracted long enough to just keep kicking the can down the road? I don't know yet. And I think it's because I haven't dealt with them in relationship yet. Ah. And that's okay. There, there are some things that you will not even know need to be healed until it comes up in a relationship. Yeah, that's good. We talked about this last week. We did. My pride. Yeah, so last week we talked about race. 
And growing up as a kid, I struggled with feeling less than because of my racial background. So I've designed this pride around not feeling affected by you know, racism or an individual looking at me a certain way, me thinking automatically, oh, that's a racist person. <clears throat> so I've gotten to the point where, well, prior, because I'm working on this, but I've gotten to the point where I was puffed up and like, oh, these people can't. I'm, I'm a really smart dude and I'm educated, I'm successful. And arrogance was my response. And in this season, God has been chipping away at that. Oh. Yeah. So there's a lot of humbling moments here. And we've talked, we've had really great conversations where he's like, actually, maybe it wasn't that thought that you're actually thinking right now and something else. And I feel like God just continues to just... Mm -hmm. well, share that example. You shared it before. And it was interesting because it had to do with perception. Like yeah. how you perceive a certain situation. Yeah. So and was, you were presenting it one way, the yeah. way you perceived it. And then we kind of explored, well, what if, what if that's not what was happening? Yeah. Well, I was in the grocery store and I was going to, trying to go around this old lady and then she went right and I went left and she went left. And then finally we kind of got stuck and she was like, go real upset. And I was like, Oh, you racist, you know, in my mind, I didn't say it to her, you know, and I just kept going. I was like, all right, ma'am, sorry. You know, and came that day and talked to Adrian about it. And he was like, well, what if she was just an angry old woman? And I was like, hmm. Yeah, that's probably what it was. Good point. But my trauma, my the, the, the lens of your experience. Lens, is, yeah. That seems so interesting because you said it and I'm like, you know, there's a lot of grumpy old people out there. Yeah. There's a lot of grumpy people. I won't even say old people. Yeah. And you presented it like that. It's like, I see a lot of grumpy people at the grocery store, period. True. I know lots of people that don't it has, want to has nothing to do with race. They're just, they're pissed. I don't know why. Yeah. If we have a certain lens on, we'll see everything through that filter. I've quoted this song. There's a song by um, one of my favorite John, uh, songwriters. is a guy named John Prine. And he wrote, he's a prolific writer. He passed away a couple of years ago. But he had this one song called Souvenirs, and there's a line in it. He says, um, broken hearts and dirty windows make it difficult to see. And I always love that line because it's like, we just got dirty windows. <laughs> And broken hearts. And we look at a situation and what we're seeing is not, not the reality. And then we respond to what we saw. And then it becomes a thought. Then it becomes a narrative. Then it becomes an emotion. Then it becomes a behavior. And then it shapes our character. And all that because we just misperceived something because of something in our past. I love that. And the grumpy old woman had dirty windows too. Yeah. Like, why are you so angry? So two people <laughs> yeah, mad at good. each other with their dirty windows. Our, the church that's we went good. to before our pastor used to say people, he said people in church, but I think it applies to people, just people. He goes, we're like porcupines trying to dance. That's funny. I think going back to the original question, it sounds like we need, and if you're listening, listening to this podcast and you're kind of trying to figure out what healing looks like, I think we have to get to a point of reflection before we can actually start doing the work. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. And that's what I've learned. Um, but without that awareness, you actually won't know what to work on. That's right. You right. automatically will put it on somebody else without even knowing what it is. But you'll believe it's that person yeah. that's doing the hurting. So good. Yeah. So what would you, what would you tell a, a, a client if they're in that situation? Where they're now coming to reflection and awareness. What are the steps? What, I guess what's the beginning process for them to start that healing journey for them? And then, and I know this is kind of like a very broad question because each individual has their own experiences, but is there like a generality in terms of like, the way that you approach that? Yeah, because it's so new for a lot of people. I mean, 20, 30, 40, 50 years into your life and all of a sudden somebody's asking you, change the way you look at everything around you. I mean, 
and now start acting on it. I wouldn't tell, I, I tell clients, don't expect so much of yourself. Don't just, just have grace for yourself. I have grace for you. Mm-hmm. I don't expect you to come in next week and say, um, I responded completely differently because I saw it through this new lens, you know, um, it's going to take some time to change your perspective. And so I tell people to first start thinking about it and start simply observing the the pattern, not the content of the situations, not what he said, what she said, but the process, what goes on, what's the dance, study the dance because it's a choreographed dance to a different song that keeps repeating. And you've learned your part. You got the same. Yes. You have the same dance moves and they've got the same dance moves. You know, what's going to happen next if you do this. And so simply observing that and in the context of looking at yourself, what am I doing? What am, what am I responding to? How am I reacting? What am I thinking? What am I believing? What am I feeling? What's that about? What's coming up? And the more you start focusing on that and simply observing, and you can just let things keep playing out the way they are, but observe yourself, observe what's going on and start thinking about it. And then we come back in in the next session, we talk about that. And then we think about what we could have done. And so it's a gradual process of changing your, your way of perceiving things. I think about that Tim Ross clip that he has going around where he talks about marriages fail because they, they forget or they, let me process this. They tend to continue the same dance. And so when, when a marriage goes stale or a relationship goes stale, what worked in the past is not going to work for the future. So you have to look at a different dance. Maybe it's a different song. Um, and this, this conversation actually confirms what he was saying. Cause there's a lot of times where I hear like other therapists on Instagram or, um, or therapists on Instagram or TikTok, and they give some really great insight. They have a good quote and they don't give context around how that actually applies in relationship. And I think going back to the Tim Ross comment, I thought it was great and I understood it. Um, but this brings light into why that needs to happen. I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't, but yeah. Um, your dance moves are your contribution. It's good. And if you alone are the one who is changing your own dance moves, it's inevitable that the other person has to respond differently and they may not like it at first because when you're changing, especially if it's for the better, you're asking the other person to grow or change too. And most people don't want to be put in that situation. And so you'll get some combat from that. And I always tell clients, that as you bring this new perspective shift home, expect things to get worse before they get better because things have to blow up a little bit and they have to be torn down to be rebuilt. And that tearing down really hurts and it feels like it's not working. It feels like it's getting worse. But inevitably that person can either keep dancing with you and they have to learn something new too, to dance with you And you also have to be consistent and not go back to the old moves because then it'll all just keep repeating. Or that person may not like this dance and may not be able to hang in there. And that's the reality. I think it's also dancing. Like I was in Puerto Rico like three or four weeks ago and I uh, was at a salsa club and you know, salsa, you you dance with anybody, right? Yeah. And I was dancing with this like uh, a, a, bachelorette party of girls and none of them knew how to salsa dance. And so I was like trying to teach them and I went one way and then the tension of them going the other way. And like, that makes total sense. Yeah. You're constantly fighting to get them back on rhythm. You're like, well, I'm going this way, but you're going the opposite way. And 
you're messing everything up and we're falling all over the place. Yeah. I love, I love this metaphor though. Yeah. This metaphor is incredible. For me, it's incredibly powerful because here's the difference. In that situation, there's grace. Totally. You don't know each other. You just walked up to somebody that you've never met before and the two of you are dancing and there's no expectation that they know or you know. So if you step on each other's toes or you bump into each other, it's like, oh, okay, we didn't know. If you've been dancing with somebody for 10 years, 15 years, and you decide to do something different and you step on each other's toes, there's some conflict there and decisions have to be made. I'm going to adapt to the changes you made or I'm pissed because you stepped on my toes and you changed and I'm walking away from this dance. Yeah. I also think about leadership in this moment because in dancing, someone has to lead. Well, in dancing, lead, leading shifts. Sometimes mm-hmm. one leads, sometimes the other leads. Mm-hmm. It's, it's complementary also. It's not... I don't think it's ever that um, set. But again, the longer you've done a dance a certain way, the more ingrained it is in you, um, the more, I like you said, blow things up. The more things are going to blow up when you change it. It's like, you just smacked my head with your elbow. What happened? I'm trying a new move. All right. Oh, okay. Well, let me just adapt to that move or... I hate you. I don't want to dance anymore. Well, if you respect and trust the person you're dancing with and they start changing their moves, you're more apt to move with them. Mm -hmm. And that's the hope that you have a leader in the home Mm -hmm. that will be able to do that. But often you have someone that's not in what should be a godly leadership role trying to lead the dance. And that's extra hard. And if you think about two kids being a part of the dance. Complicates everything. That's another dimension. For a little kid to be treated as the problem in the home, the symptom, and to be sent to work on their own stuff and the parents not be involved in it. And a kid learns something and tries to come home with it. How are they going to lead their parents in a new dance? That whole system is the same system they go to and those are the leaders. And so it's important if you get your kid into therapy that you are a willing, active participant in that, if not the participant. Yeah. That just seems like a whole nother dimension of difficulty. Yeah. Of challenge because now, now there's multiple layers of of adaptation. They're changing. You change. Well, that's going to affect the dynamic between the parents too. Yes. And how they interact with the, oh, wow. That's, that seems very complex. Yes. Because if you think about, if anybody comes and brings change home and you can expect things to get worse before they get better, what's a kid to do with that when things get worse? I think about my kids. Yeah. Like they've had to navigate this whole new season, right? Um, and I've even had to learn how to parent and react and be aware of moments. I could tell you a quick story. There was one, one time uh, Briley was coming home from school. I could tell something was off. Like I could tell she was upset about something, but she didn't communicate it in the car. Usually she does. Usually she's like, dad, guess what? <laughs> Laundry list. And I'm like, all right, let's talk about that. This time she didn't. And she was really moody and she was upset. She was really sensitive. And then we get home, I'm sitting in the kitchen and she's standing between the doorway. And she's complaining about something and I, I just saw it in her. I was like, hey, sis, is something going on today? I said, is something happening at school? And then her body just went, yeah. And she's like, my teacher yelled at me. And then this happened and this happened. And I knew in that moment, there's only two things I can do. I could tell her everything's going to be okay. Get over it. Or I could affirm her and sit with her. And so I just looked at her in her eyes. I said, you know, I'm really sorry that happened today. I walked up to her and I grabbed her and I hugged her. Sat there and I just hugged her. Didn't let go. And took maybe about 30 seconds. 
She goes, okay, thanks. And then walked away. And I was like, <laughs> all right. Job well done. Yeah. And, but I mean, she's been alive for seven years at that time. And this is the first time that I saw her in this way. And this is the first time as a parent, I saw an opportunity and not saying that I've written every, everything off, but I think now I'm more aware of it because of the things that I've gone through and the, you know, the awareness and the reflections and the work that I've done that I was able to look at her and her situation and be there for her and not, not tell her to just go back to the same dance that she's used to. Cause it's not there no more. Yeah. Right. Cause mom and dad are not the unit anymore. So it's just dad or mom when they're with her, with their mom. So we have to be aware in those moments to be able to change up the dance. I think that's really important. So there was a lot of conviction when you were bringing up the kids because this is one of those things where now I have an accountability and a responsibility to react in a new way that I've never done before. And I'm starting to, um, but this is, this is kind of shedding light into why, which is really great. And hopefully whoever's listening, if they have kids or if they don't, maybe they just have maybe the parents. This can, this can be in any different facet of relationship, right? I think as you were mentioning that dynamic with kids, my heart immediately goes out to the kids, mm-hmm. to the child in that situation. So I think of a situation where you have two parents and a child and a child's going in for therapy to change some behavior, to deal with, to, to learn how to deal with something. And when you mentioned they come back and they're changing their behavior in, in some way or they're changing some something to try to, to manage or to get better. The first thing, the first thought that came to mind was some kids seem like they're more emotionally aware and mature earlier um, than others. And my first thought for some reason was, was a child that comes back, they start making these changes and it creates this disruption in the home. And one of the things that I as a child needed and I think kids need is stability. And if you come back and you do something that even momentarily or temporarily destabilizes your environment, you probably don't want to keep doing it. That's right. You try to get it stable again. So this healthy stuff that you're trying to work through, you're trying to do these things, you're trying to do a new dance because the one you've done is broken. You come start doing it, but then it affects how mom interacts with dad and affects how dad interacts. And you have this, this turmoil, this disruption to the pattern and, you know, the norm if I'm a child and I see that my behavior is destabilizing the context that I am accustomed to, I'm going to stop that behavior. That's right. It's not working, right? It's like, and as kids, we do what works and what and, feels good. And especially as a child. Like, and I think it, it sounds like it's very important for the parents to be aware of that, to know, okay, look, somehow we need to let them know everything's still stable. Everything's okay. We need to talk through this so that they don't give in to that, what I think would be a natural inclination to, to want to go back to, to stasis or to that normal, that normal behavior. That's true. It seems like a very heavy burden on a child who in this scenario is already going to therapy to deal with something. So to put an additional thing of them, additional burden of, you know, the burden of, Oh, I'm the cause for disruption in our home. Right. That's got to be incredibly I was the hard. cause of disruption to begin with. That's why I'm in therapy. And now I'm the cause for further disruption. Because I'm trying to get better. Or, or I'm changing. I'm changing. Mm-hmm. Man. This conversation has been great. It's going everywhere. It, it, it is, that's our podcast. <laughs> We're all over the place. It, it's like a pinball game yeah. with us. It's, it's typically everywhere. I mean, we like to keep this like if we're just having a conversation, which we are, um, without mics. So we typically give an action item for people at the end of each podcast or each episode. So what's a good one for today? Just in general. I mean, in the theme, not in the theme. I think a good one would be to do that work for yourself try to think about and observe what kind of dance you have with people that are closest to you. 
or any kind of relationship that you feel you're struggling in, just start observing yourself. And my favorite question that I tell clients to ask and that sometimes they say they hear my voice over their shoulder and I think it's funny. What's that about? That is so good. I love that. Yeah. What's that about? What's coming up? What's my reaction about? Why do I not like that? All right, guys and girls. What's that about? I'm going to, that's, I'm probably going to hear your voice. <laughs> that's, about that. I am now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm now going to hear her voice. So anytime I feel uncomfortable, anytime something come, comes up, I'm going to hear Jess's voice. Yeah. What, what's that about? I'm honored. <laughs> so you got Stu, Kling, and then we got Jess. What's that about? What's that about? Yeah. Okay. Minor correction. Kling was mine. Oh, sorry. Anybody who wants to record my voice real quick and play it over. <laughs> Maybe careful AI. That's what's gonna, that about? That's going to be my ringtone for Jess's number. It's like, what's that about? All right, ready? Turn on your phones. Three, two, one. What's that about? We could probably get that in an AI tool. Pull that somehow. Well, thank you. This You're was awesome. And I want to have you on here again because this is great. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I'd love to be here again. It was so good. Actually, next time, maybe we have both you and John. Oh, that would be so cool. Wouldn't that be fun? Oh, I'd love that. That would be awesome. Okay. We'll make that happen. Cool. All right, guys. Until next time. Ciao. Later.